Hi, everyone. It's really amazing to see absolutely more than ever before in this room. I can't believe we all fit. Um, first thing to say is that Johanna gave me more credit we should all have the credit for bringing this project to life because there were many, many hours spent talking about how to do it and everyone on staff pitched in to pull this project together. So I want to thank the Third Coast staff for also believing in this idea because there were some times where I didn't believe in it myself and just wasn't sure if it was going to fly. But it really ended up working great. Um, we couldn't be happier with the results of this. We were calling it a, an audio experiment and it was our first big experiment that we took public. So from the beginning, we were really excited to push ourselves. You know, we're always preaching to be more creative in your radio making. And we thought, well, how can we be a little more creative in running this festival? Because we're always trying to keep ourselves energized and excited about what we're doing. So we decided to take the short docs, which is something we've been doing for the past three years, where we usually invite producers to submit ideas about a particular theme thirst, darkness, games, you may remember hearing some of those. We'd pick four ideas, commission that work, and present it here in this first session. Well, this year we decided to invite anyone and everyone to get involved. We thought of this project and um, we decided we would pick four of the submissions to bring to the conference to present this year. Um, we, as Johanna said, the whole point was to see what sort of creativity would be triggered by limiting options, by giving people constraints to work with and against and push and pull, and to see what would happen with that. So we created three rules, and these were the guiding principles for these audio pieces. The first rule was that each, um, well, let me back up a little bit. We called the project 99 Ways to Tell a Radio Story. So we created a noun here. We started getting ways. They would come in through email, through the mail. So I'll be referring to these ways throughout the morning, and that those are the little pieces that people submitted. Um, and so each way, the first rule was that it had to begin with some manifestation of the idea. To begin with, they never got along. So this is just a random sentence that we picked, obviously de deciding to give you the chance to create a little bit of tension in your little two and a half minute piece. Um, and so we. We got all variations on this idea of to begin with, they never got along. And what I did, just to give you a sense of some of those, because we won't be able to hear as many as we'd like, but I wanted to give you a sense of the variety um, of variations on this, this idea that we got. Some of these beginnings were produced by people in the room, and hopefully you'll just get a sense of uh, some of the things that people came up with. I begyndelsen, der kom det ikke særlig godt ud af det med hinanden, min søster og Afsondrigheden. In the beginning, they never got along, because Windows and the antivirus programs have different values. An opening sentence. To begin with, they never got along. North Pole. 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 To begin with, they never really got along. Before the tip, you didn't even look at your former teammate, Kobe Bryant. Why not? To begin with, they never got along, but they still try, try, tried to have a relationship. 
alcohol and this body. To begin with, we never got along. Tried to stay apart, but before too long. Be back together, side by side. Hamilton and Bert, perfect founders. To begin with, they never got along, came Polly. They never got mystery men. They never got flirting with disaster. If my friends can't understand Ben Stiller's sheer brilliance, I really don't know how they're going to ever understand me. To begin with, they never got along. I hate you. I hate you. They never, never, never begin with. Never begin with. To begin with, they got along. They begin with. Never Never got along. Okay, so just a sampling of the 73 ways that came in. Those were the beginnings, so. Um, the second rule we imposed on this project was each way had to include three specific sounds that had to have a pre-recorded voice, a rhythmic noise, and an exclamation. All things that should be audible at some point during the piece, in that order. And the third rule was this two minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, we asked that, that uh, the ways be exactly 2.30. And I can't tell you how many people said, does it really, 2.40, 2.32, 2.28? You know, we said 2.30, we really, we really hoped people would try to, because that was part of the challenge, to really follow the rules and take it to the extreme and see. I would like to, I'd like, probably about 95% of them came in at 2.30, so I was very proud of people for following that rule. Um, the last thing we did, which wasn't a rule but a request, was that people would submit their ways and uh, sort of designate a style that they made it in. And this was also to push people to think about how they were making these pieces and uh, to come up with a description for the particular way that they submitted the piece. Um, a couple that I remember that caught my eye when they came in, one was uh, submitted as a bedtime story, one was absurdist holiday fiction, one was hysteria verite, um, and one was meta-audio. So as you can see, we got a whole range of pieces. Um, before I go on and talk a little bit more about the project, I thought we'd jump right in and hear one of the ways, just to get your ears warmed up, um, if they're not already warmed up from the montage of, of beginnings. Uh, this is called The Long Way Home, and it was made by David Henderson. To begin with, they never got along. But still, you wanted Penelope and Odysseus to make it through as a couple. The Trojan War naturally kept them apart for a while, but what really bothered Penelope was all of Odysseus's dithering on the way home. Until now, we only had Homer's account to go by. But new insight is provided by Penelope's answering machine tape, recently discovered in an Athens thrift store. We've reached Penelope and Odysseus. We're not home right now. Some of us haven't been home for a very long time, but someone has to hold down the fort, raise our son, and send off all these suitors. Well, anyway, if you'd like to leave a message, you know what to do. You know, my love, you know that if I had any say in the matter, I would be home with you right now, with every one of my bells on, cozying up with you with a nice bottle of red, feeding you figs and nibbling at your earlobes and more, till the break of rosy-fingered dawn. But I seem to find myself unavoidably detained on this desolate island, a million miles from the one I love. Oh, that's you, by the way, Penelope. We just found this real chill place with a nice hotel. You'd love it, Penelope. We're going to relax and recharge and get back on the road soon. The 
hostess here is real sweet. Hey. Whoa. <laughs> this place is cool, Penelope. And I had a sip of this juice. This nice lady gave me. There's like palm trees and 18 different kinds of falafel. Oh, Penelope. Oh yeah, now the guys are... <laughs> Why are they trying to shave that cat? Whoa. I'll be home soon. You're not gonna like this, Penelope. Believe me, I'm not thrilled myself. We were driving on I-80 today. Making pretty good time, actually. When diabetes Taurus broke down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were stuck on the interstate for four hours. Okay, Penelope, we've got the alternator on the Taurus fixed. I'm coming back soon, I swear. Please don't give those suitors any of my good beer. Okay, A Long Way Home by David Henderson. David's style was pseudo-found audio. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why we did this project. Uh, besides this idea of exploring creativity through constraint, we wanted to give producers who are working on a daily basis um, free reign or their permission, as Kenny mentioned earlier, to, to push themselves beyond what they usually have to do or are inclined to do even when they get into the studio. So this was really a, a chance to play around a little bit and experiment yourselves with some um, techniques and just to take on the challenge, but also push yourselves a little bit beyond your limits. Um, we also wanted to invite people who had never picked up a microphone to give it a try, a reason to do this. And I'm really pleased. We heard from about a half a dozen people at least who said, this is the first thing I've ever done. And it was just a reason for them to go and make a piece. Um, we had a local piece done by a Chicagoan who, uh, it's called The Interloper. You can find all these online. And she was, I called her up to say, will you come out to our listening room and so we can play this for some other people and you can talk about the experience. I said, we're, we invited the we're inviting some local producers to come. And a little, like 10 minutes later into the conversation, she just started laughing. And I said, what? She said, you called me a producer. And I said, well, you are. You made this piece. So it was really this chance for people who never thought of fancied themselves radio producers to give it a go. So we were uh, very pleased by that. And another goal was to make this public at all times. So as soon as the ways started coming in, um, we put them online, and the archive is still there. It'll be uh, remain permanently on the Third Coast website. So if you haven't had a chance, you can you can you know tackle it a couple a day because they're short. They're very useful in that way. Um, if you're waiting for something else to download, just go and listen to a couple of ways. So, so those were the three main ideas we had in putting the project together. So far, we have 73 of the 99. <clears throat> Ahem. We are going to accept submissions until the end of the year, so we hope people will be inspired to go make them. Um, and the, one of the most surprising things was these came in from all over the world. We have like 14 different countries represented with the ways, including Spain and France and Austria, Australia, tons from Canada, Holland, Germany, Switzerland. I mean, they really came in from all over. It was really exciting to see that this was an idea that could be universal and interpreted all, all over the world. So. Uh, we picked four of those 73. You're going to hear those in a second. We're going to invite the producers up. Um, but first, I wanted to 
introduce Matt, who's going to talk a little bit about his project, which, as Johanna said, was the original inspiration for my for the Third Coast project, 99 Ways to Tell a Radio Story. Um, before he talks a little bit about his book, let's hear one more of the ways. And this one's from Switzerland. It's called The Yakuza Code. It's by Christian Gosser. A, to begin with, they never got along. B, they are brother and sister. C, Midori ran away when she was 15 and became the number one elevator girl in a big bookstore in Tokyo. And D, Yoshitoro became the grand master of profanities on Japanese television. Also, Midori used to hate her brother. She now spends her lonely evenings watching his show and nurtures sisterly tenderness for him. But Yoshitoro has a dark secret. A. Losing his money in pachinko gambling dens run by the Yakuza, Yoshitoro became their instrument. B. The Yakuza syndicated his show to a Japanese cable network in the US. C. They promised, we will protect the American morality by bleeping the worst profanities. But D. The b are secret codes for Yakuza franchises in the US. This leads to many villainies, the most horrible being the Chicago incident of October 28. A. The morning after hearing this bleep sequence, Asakawa-san, a mild-mannered accountant, takes the blue line to the loop. B. At 7.50 a.m. he hacks into the CTA communication system. Thank you for See, as soon as Igor, Russian box champion turned construction worker, hears the message, he picks up two hammers. The El Cieguito, the suave street singer, forwards the code with his song. E, passing by, gorgeous computer wizard Jane D, smiles knowingly. F, entering the lobby of the Second City Trust Tower at 7.59, she pretends to stumble. G, in fact, the rhythm of her high heels crushes the skyscraper's security system. But this is not the story I intended to tell you. I want to tell you how Midori and Yoshitoro meet again. After taping the aforementioned show, Yoshitoro accidentally walks into a bookstore. Wow, what a lovely voice, he whispers. What else would you say, did he think? A. This sexy voice should be on my show. B. I should ask her out. C. She sounds familiar. If only I could see her face. Or D. Okay. Uh, so Christian's an acquaintance of mine, and I knew he had spent some time in Chicago and in Japan, and that he was going to try to pull a story together with field recordings from both places. And you know, who knew how he'd pull he'd do it? But this is actually all those recordings were ones that he had made, and out came this story. So um, one thing that occurs to me about his story was that it, it's almost like a cartoon in itself. Like it, it just there's so much going on; it's very dynamic. So I think this is a nice time to bring Matt into the conversation. Matt's a cartoonist from Brooklyn, and I was wondering if you had that sort of impression when you heard it as well. Um, yeah, I hadn't, well, I hadn't thought about it as a sort of uh, comic book kind of thing before. Although it's funny because Christian, I, I know Christian actually as a comics writer in Switzerland. There's actually as a comics radio connection there. Right. Um, but yeah, maybe more like a like a 
cartoon in the sense of animated film. Yeah, definitely has like a. Yeah, we just saw like characters scrambling around everywhere, and somehow it, it was this visual sort of like color animation thing. I think for all of us when we heard it the first time. So, um, all right. Well, I'm gonna let Matt talk about his project a little bit, and then we're gonna bring the Shark Docs producers up. So, please welcome Matt Madden. I'll also point out before I start that although I'm now primarily a uh, cartoonist and teacher, I was once a freeform radio DJ at WCBN FM in Ann Arbor many years ago. Um, all right, so I'm going to show a few pages from my book, 99 Ways to Tell a Story, uh, Exercises in Style. Um, and it was from talking in this book with Julie that we came up with uh, the ideas for what became the, the radio project. Um, so the radio project, as you see, is like kind of a assembly kit for stories. We, we gave people ingredients that they had mixed stories of. Uh, my project's a little bit different um, in the sense, well, first of all, it's all done myself. It's 99 comics that I drew myself. Um, and they're all telling the exact same story, uh, unlike the radio story, which is, you know, different stories using the same stuff. Mine's kind of the same story using different stuff each time. So I'll show you what I mean. Um, my goal in this was to, to choose, a, to do a one-page comic that would be um, kind of a, a non-story, a kind of fairly undynamic narrative um, in and of itself so that uh, I could, you know, spin stories out of it and make it interesting in the way that it's told more than the actual content or lack thereof. Um, it's actually pretty hard to come up with a a non-story. Um, and for better or worse, after struggling with it for a while and brainstorming, I settled on autobiography and came up with this sort of quasi-autobiographical uh, incident um, that is my, I call my template comic. It's the one that all the other stories are based on. Uh, so I'll just walk you through it here quickly. Starts with a guy sitting at a laptop computer. He stands up, putting the computer to sleep, goes into the next room. Uh, at that point, somebody interrupts him from upstairs, asks him what time it is. He answers. The voice thanks him as he opens a refrigerator door. He pauses in front of the refrigerator a minute before leaning in and asking himself, what the hell was I looking for anyway? Um, so that's my story, such as it is, not really much to it. Um, so that gave me kind of free reign to really think about how many different ways I could tell the story uh, and make that really what is going to you know, make you want to keep reading the thing. So um, the, the, act, the creative process was pretty organic. I kind of you know, did stuff as it occurred to me and that led to other ideas. Um, but just to give you sort of a, a kind of overview grouped by sort of subject, um, there are a lot of different ways that I, I approached telling a story. One basic way is uh, different points of view. Um, so, for example, this one is a subjective point of view. Um, one of the things uh, I was uh, investigating in doing this project was the language of comics and how comics in particular, um, as a medium, have their own uh, formal rules that can be exploited and, and explored. So this one tells the same story, but if you notice, compared to the original template, it's the same eight panels, the same... the word balloons appear at the same place and in the same position. So I tried as much as possible to, to uh, follow the, the model of the original template. So um, this one's simple point of view change. Uh, another variation is changing from 
uh, which character we're following. So this story follows, this one follows the character upstairs. This is actually, a, out of the 99, it's one of the very few where you actually see the, the other character that asks for the time. Um, towards the end of the project, I realized that there's, a, there's kind of a third character in this story, <laughs> which is the refrigerator uh, itself. So this one is told from the refrigerator's point of view. Continuing different, the idea of point of view and, and you know, watching and looking at stuff um, led me to the thought of voyeurism. So this one is uh, a very literal third person, you know, across the street spying on the, on the couple of the story. Um, again, trying to, to both explore the medium that I'm working in um, and also taking my rules to their logical extreme. I decided, well, if you're spying on someone in a comic, um, that would include presumably also the word balloons and thought balloons are sort of... <laughs> So they're sort of partially obscured by the window there. Uh, another general class are uh, kind of varieties of storytelling. Um, what we've seen so far are all pretty straightforward uh, kind of third-person views of one, from one person's point of view or another. Most basic sort of story, though, um, is just a monologue, somebody telling you a story. And even in comics, this is going to be a great way to tell stories. I mean, if you've ever read any of Harvey Pekar's work or some of Robert Crumb's stuff, you know that um, you can have very exciting comics that are just a guy, panel after panel, and uh, just the way you make little gestures and pacing the size of the panels really affects the way the story comes across. Uh, a flashback, of course, rearranges a story and adds kind of an instant drama of, you know, what was and, uh, you know, what has been lost. And this one really turns the story into a very kind of tragic and sordid uh, opera. I'll, re I'll read this one to you quickly because it's kind of funny. Um, so notice it's still, it's still the same eight panels, it's still the same word balloons in the same place, but I've changed the content slightly. So the first panel, instead of a guy at a computer, uh, it's now an old drunk sitting in a bar, uh, talking to the bartender or to himself, saying it all started with a simple question, and then uh, you get the wavy lines indicating the flashback. It was in our apartment in Mexico City back in 98. I'd gotten up from my desk to get something. Something. And then Jessica, who's upstairs drawing, she asked me, what time is it? It's 1.15. Around that time, I could tell something wasn't quite right. Thanks. And we get the wavy lines as we leave the flashback. And I just stood there at that refrigerator, and it's like I could see my life unraveling in front of me. And we're back in the present day in a dive bar covered with cockroaches. And to this day, I still don't know what the hell I was looking for. Uh, here's one where I compressed an entire life into the eight panels. Again, trying to keep to my original template as closely as possible so that uh, I could have changed the dialogue slightly to make it more sensible, but I, I kind of liked the mild surrealism of the uh, guy proposing to a woman asking her what time it is. <laughs> and the priest saying it's 1.15, and then, but then it actually comes back together and makes sense again when uh, he's saying thanks for his firstborn child. <laughs> Unfortunately, the laws of the comic then dictate that he still doesn't remember what the hell he was looking for on his deathbed. Uh, comics, of course, uh, you can't really talk about them without uh, getting into the question of genre because that's what, you know, when people think of comics, they still, uh, although comics are doing much better now in sort of mass cultural appreciation, uh, still people think of old romance comics, superhero comics, stuff like that. Um, so I'll just uh, go through a few here that are, these are more kind of based on the drawing style, but I also kind of changed the stories as kind of a sordid romance story in this version with the garish uh, Roy Lichtenstein kind of colors. 
a uh, kind of a high noon parody that's a Western, more of a chiaroscuro look, kind of a corny uh, EC sci-fi one, Invaders from Mars. I made up a language for that one for the aliens to speak. Um, this is a, not mine of course, this is a, just a, a sort of random page of a manga if you've never read Japanese comics, they have a very different uh, visual style and kind of storytelling language to them, uh, very dynamic panel layouts and uh, sound effects and things like that. So I had some Japanese friends of mine translate the dialogue and also the sound effects in this one. <laughs> and notice you have to read it from right to left, you're not going to understand it, it's done in, a, in Japanese reading order. Um, all this stuff, you know, talking about the form of, of the particular medium that I'm working in, which is comics, um, and so all of these things are in some way, you know, playing with uh, the way things are told, the form of storytelling, um, and the, using kind of rules that I set for myself. The whole project is a rule, I have to do 99 versions of the same story, and each individual one has a sort of rule of one sort that it, it follows, like it's got to be, I've got to make this conform to the conventions of romance comics. Um, some are more straightly playing with the material of the comics, such as this, uh, you know, breaking down into my sort of assembly kit, what are my basic ingredients that I'm playing around with. Also again, using the panels, so telling, just seeing how, how many panels you use in a given comic affects the way the story comes across, one panel versus 30. Sometimes a little bit absurdist, just playing with uh, kind of quasi-mathematical rules. So this one, the, the main character increases by one each panel until you have eight <laughs> protagonists surrounding the refrigerator in the last panel. A little bit uncanny. Zooming in on details, treating the original comic like a sort of collage element. Um, so zooming in on hands and punctuation marks. Um, or alternately zooming out, this one I shrank down the original panels and then kind of filled in the outside, outside of the panels, but going for like the, the least likely thing you'd expect to see out there so that the, uh, the refrigerator in the fourth panel, for example, becomes a Zamboni on an ice rink. Um, I like word games a lot and, and, uh, and you know, different kinds of weird poetry forms and I've been trying to figure out how those can be applied to uh, comics and, and just generally sort of looking to different media to uh, um, see what I can borrow from them to, and, you know, and what I do. Um, was another reason why this whole project's been very exciting to me because I just sort of learned a lot. Um, so this is a palindrome, you know, something that reads both ways like Madam, I'm Adam, go hang a salami, I'm a lasagna hog. Uh, <laughs> But done in comics, it's uh, done with a series of panels instead of letters going back and forth. Um, an anagram uh, from, for example, by scrambling the letters in the phrase Ronald Wilson Reagan, you can get insane Anglo warlord. That's a, an anagram. So uh, I did two of these. This one just scrambles the original eight panels and kind of makes a new story that's pretty close to the original and, and pretty sensible, but it occurred to me I could go at a do sort of higher level anagram, scramble all the elements of the comic, including the title, so in, exercise in style becomes Latini sex crisis. And uh, what the hell was I looking for becomes, how is he flaying a hollow watery tank? <laughs> and I'll scroll through a few more here and move on with the show. Some of these are historical comics, the Bayeux Tapestry recast as a uh, 
an epic search for an empty refrigerator. <laughs> Latin text in there. It says, Hic Matthias pulpitum ad mandatum dubium relinquit. Here Matthias leaves his desk on an uncertain errand. Um, did a bunch on, you know, sort of classic comic, uh, newspaper comic and comic book characters, The Yellow Kid, um, Crazy Cat, that's one of the great comic strips of all time. You should all read it if you haven't. It's all being reprinted now by Fanographics. Tintin style, kind of the ligne claire that Tintin Hergé made famous. Charles, also, you know, getting beyond just like straight comics into things like comics used as advertisements, like the famous Charles Atlas ad. Here Charles Atlas becomes uh, Ray Cano, who we'll be talking about in a minute, the, uh, who's awarded for the world's longest book of sonnets, according to this ad here. And even pushing the boundaries of what comics are normally considered, such as an uh, emergency evacuation chart A sheet full of advertisements in the back pages of a newspaper can often be considered, you, know, you can sort of read it and try and find stories out of uh, the back pages of the reader or whatever. Even a map can be considered a kind of comic in a way. It's got images and text and it tells a kind of story. So that's a little sample of uh, what I was doing in, in my book, 99 Ways to Tell a Story. Is this, this one's on. Okay. 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 The reason we thought this was such a great project to work with, even though it was purely visual, is because it really underlined this idea that stories can be told in so many ways. And that's what we're always hoping to hear from the producers that are out there making radio. Or we hear a lot of the same stories, but it's really in the skill and telling the same, some of the same stories in different ways that bring us more understanding about similar topics. So um, that was the connection that I felt we could make really strongly with Matt. How long did it take you to put the book together? Um, I started it in 1998 and finished it. Uh, I did probably you know two thirds of it in a kind of nine month mad dash to meet my publisher's deadline uh, last spring. So, so it was multi. Yeah, it was you know it was sort of a side project for a long time, but um, but yeah, you know, good seven years or so of work. And um, in the same way that the 99 Ways to Tell a Radio Story project didn't certainly wasn't born in my head and sort of came didn't come to me out of the blue. Your project didn't come to you out of the blue either, right? Uh, no, as we saw in the, the Charles Atlas parody that I just had up, um, I su substituted Charles Atlas with uh, somebody that I named Ray Cano, more commonly referred to as Raymond Cano. He's a French writer uh, and novelist. Um, and he wrote a book uh, in 1947 called Exercises in Style, um, which does basically the same thing that I did uh, with my book. I, I discovered it you know, in the early 90s. and. Um, it's what gave me the basic idea of taking a short uh, sort of non-narrative fragment and uh, doing 99 variations of it. And uh, so I have the book here with me and I'm gonna read you a couple just to give you a further idea of where I got my ideas from and, uh, and how this works in other mediums. We've seen comics and here's sort of the prose and, and text version of it. Um, the version that, the story that Cano tells is, is uh, Different. I chose not to like do a direct kind of cover version of his story and everything, 
but rather tell my own. So I'll give you a relatively straight version of it and then read parts of a few variations to give you an idea of what kind of stuff he did with it. So this one, and each one's t titled with, uh, like mine, with a, a name that kind of gives you some clue as to what the, the style's gonna be or what the uh, rhetorical strategy is or, or uh, you know, what the gag is in some cases. Um, so this one's just called Narrative, relatively straightforward. One day at about midday in the Parc Monceau district, on the back platform of a more or less full S-bus, I observed a person with a very long neck who was wearing a felt hat which had a plated cord around it instead of a ribbon. This individual suddenly addressed the man standing next to him, accusing him of purposely treading on his toes every time any passengers got on or off. However, he quickly abandoned the dispute and threw himself onto a seat which had become vacant. And then there's a break and it continues. Two hours later, I saw him in front of the Gare Saint-Lazare, engaged in an earnest conversation with a friend who was advising him to reduce the space between the lapels of his overcoat by getting a competent tailor to raise the top button. Uh, so again, scarcely more uh, interesting than my original story. Um, so from that, he you know does all kinds of variations, including just changing the, the tense and sort of the you know uh, basic variations of the ways you can write stuff. Um, but you know he gets more and more absurd and inventive as he goes along. Um, everything from things like word composition. So uh, that one starts. I was plat bus forming co-massitudinarily in a Lutetia meridional, uh, meridional space time and I was neighboring a long, long is musical plate round the hatted greenhorn, and so on. Um, sometimes a, a relatively straightforward uh, approach leads to some, some interesting results, like a, telling the story in passive voice. Um, it was midday. The bus was being got into by passengers. <laughs> they were being squashed together. A hat was being worn on the head of a young gentleman, which hat was encircled by a plate and not by a ribbon. A long neck was one of the characteristics of the young man. The man standing next to him was being grumbled at by the latter because of the jostling which was being inflicted on him by him. Um, something I love about Kano's book and that I tried to emulate in my own book is the way he, you know, he sets a rule or constraint for himself and he kind of takes it to his logical conclusion even if it causes eventually a, a total breakdown of meaning, um, such as this one which is uh, called perichesis, which is a rhetorical form that the meaning of which will come clear as I, as I read this. Uh, it starts, on the butt end of a bulging bus which was transbustling an abundance of incubuses and buckmanites from bumbledom towards their bungalows, and so on. Um, so obviously it's sort of this BU sound, kind of a, a onomatopoeia kind of thing. Um, by the end though it becomes, but busequently I beheld him with a buckish buddy who was buswading him to budge a button on his bum freezer. So he's, he's always going to push it just a little bit too far until things kind of fall around. Just a couple more here. Unwe, a day, about ye, id day, may, on ye, en ye, essay, so on. Um, this one's called zoological. In the dog days, while I was in a birdcage at feeding time, I noticed a young puppy with a neck like a giraffe, who, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wore yet a precious beaver upon his head. So, you get the that's idea. A little sampling of Kano's work. <laughs> There's even a haiku version of the story in the mm -hmm. book. It's it's really and it's funny because your appetite for the story does not diminish. You're hearing you are hearing the same story 99 times, but it just becomes somehow more thrilling every time you turn the page and see a new version of it. Um, so, um, but Kano was sort of working in the context of a larger genre. Or, or what was his inspiration yeah, for the I book? Yeah, I mean, he uh, he actually got the idea to do this book. Um, we're, you know, we're sort of hopping from one medium to another because. He went to see a performance of Bach's Art of the Fugue um, in the late 30s, and which is, you know, some 
14, I think, short pieces that all have this uh, very simple kind of six note or so melody line that's very basic. Um, and each piece starts with this basic melody line and then starts to spin variations on it, you know, doing it backwards, doing it faster or slower, um, doing canons of various sorts. Um, and it was listening to that and thinking about this idea of, of you know, variations on a theme and working from limited means that gave him the idea like, oh, someone should do a prose version of this. Um, the same way that I saw his book, you know, 40 years later and thought, oh, someone should do a comics version of this. And then? And then What's the audio last equivalent year, or the near audio equivalent? Um, so. And more generally, I mean, Cano is in his other work and his novels and, and poetry, um, was always uh, a you know, formalist who played around with the form of language. And the reference earlier to him being the uh, author of the world's longest book of sonnets, he wrote a, uh, a book of sonnets that were modeled after those um, the children's book where you can switch to three different parts of an animal and get different animals. Um, he applied that idea to, to a poem. So he had 10 little strips. So there are 10 sonnets with 10 strips, and you can rearrange them. and. They're, by the, mouth, the, the title is usually referred to as a hundred billion billion sonnets. Um, it's basically impossible to ever read all the different combinations you can come up with. Um, and uh, that comes out of his, that was sort of the founding work of this group that he formed in the early 60s uh, called Ulipo, the, which is uh, the workshop for potential literature. Um, and that, their general approach uh, is you know, a very playful approach to creativity and writing involving um, using often very arbitrary random rules and setting yourself these, these kind of impossible tasks to overcome. And that's what kind of sets you on your way to creating a, a work of art. Um, the most famous example besides the, the sonnet book is George Perec's novel, um, La Disparition, or A Void, uh, which, he, which is a really enjoyable kind of rip-roaring uh, thriller kind of. Um, and it's easy to forget as you're reading through it that uh, the letter E never appears in the entire novel. He, he set himself the task of writing a novel without using the letter E, which in, in French is even more perverse than, than, uh, than in English. But, uh, but it's, I find it actually quite readable. I mean, I, you know, it, it, once you, at first it's a completely disorienting, uh, but you start to kind of get the rhythm and he comes up with new phrases, you know, everything has to be rethought. Like, you know, you can't take anything for granted anymore. So you're constantly challenged, like every, every new sentence is a new challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for, it can be a really great way to sort of get to creative breakthroughs and, and certainly to come up with stuff you could never come up with otherwise. I mean, just the fact that, you're, that the E is not there kind of guarantees that you're going to come up with, with new material that you would, you, would never, you would never sit down with a blank piece of page and write a text and like, oh, I didn't use any E's on that page. Right. So, okay, well, let's, let's uh, now actually turn the session over to the Short Docs producers who took our overwhelming task and made great radio out of it. Um, I'd like to introduce the four producers and invite them to come up. Sasha Aslanian, Karma Jolly, Jill Summers, and Zoe Irvine. Thank you. Welcome, guys. Um, Matt and I are going to talk for just a second about the process, how this actually happened. Uh, so I went and saw him read uh, December 2005 and came back to the office very excited about how to do it. But then we had a series of phone calls talking about 
how are we actually going to make this work? Because we didn't want to create a story that we then had 99 versions of a specific story. We felt like it had to, I, we felt strongly that it had to be a little bit more open to encourage as many people as possible to get involved from the audio world. Um, right, the idea of literally taking, like, uh, choosing a, a radio story and then telling people to just come up with different ways to do it didn't seem that productive. When it's, you know, it's, if it's one artist doing it, it's, you know, you're, every, everything's different, but you could end up with, you know, um, whatever, you know, 20 All Things Considered parodies. And the, the interesting thing was from the beginning, Matt was really pushing us to be a little bit more strict. We were sort of saying, well, well, we'll give a time range to, you know, two minutes to two and a half to three minutes to, okay, oh, two, two and a half to two forty-five. I but said he, no. Got to <laughs> be. He was really, he really held us our feet to the fire, so to speak. An appropriate yeah, metaphor for this morning. Um, it's counterintuitive, but uh, you know, I think that the more, uh, the more strict and, and the more random the constraints are, the more productive they can be. Um, and when you tell someone it has to be two minutes and 30 seconds, they're not just thinking it's got to be kind of short. They're thinking it's got to be exactly two, it can't be over that, it can't be under that, it's got to be exactly that. So you have to plan, you know, figure that in their whole planning. And we also played around with the opening sentence, of course. We had a couple, uh, and we try, had to really figure out what are we going for with this opening sentence. It, we really wanted something that would be identifiable, because that was the main thing. We wanted to hear similarities in all these stories to see how many variations of these ideas we could come up with. So. We uh, kicked a couple of different sentences around and played with them and then settled on the, to begin with, they never got along. So, um, which by the way is grammatically incorrect. We were informed by uh, an attendee who will be here tomorrow, Rick Moody wrote a very, very long email about how our sentence was incorrect um, with, with good humor. Uh, and so, but I think people worked with it pretty well and managed their ways around our mistake. So um, let's get going and listen to the short docs now. Uh, the first one we're going to play is uh, by Jill Summers. It's called Talk to Me About Love. Jill's down there on the end. She's from Chicago. And uh, we'll talk with her after we hear it. they never got along. As children, he pulled her coarse braids until she cried, and she teased him mercilessly about his lisp. She pulled his two large ears, and he pinched the soft flesh under her arm to jolt her from her daily naps. He put garlic oil in her atomizer. She hid his dress shoes before prom. Even now, more than 20 querulous years later, he deigned to whisper to her suitors that she had hair from her waist to her knees. And she delighted in purloining his lovers with the siren-like voice she had inherited from their mother. The product of the only medically documented instance of two separate zygotes fusing in utero, the world's lone case of conjoined fraternal twins, in fact. It had been inconvenient, to say the least. But now, in the operating room, biting heavy lids, 
He turned to face her, and together they looked at the smooth, iodine-stained skin that bound them. As physically close as they had ever been, she now felt the vast expanse that kept him from her. And it was marked by the red dotted line of the doctor's pen. The anesthesiologists lifted masks onto their mouths one at a time, and the steely edge of the scalpel caught the light of the surgical lamp. Though no one else in the room heard it, to each, the other's voice rang out resonant and clear. Wait. But it was too late. Jill, you played the music in that, didn't you? Um, yeah, my husband, who's an audio engineer, and I played the music. Um, Sorry, there's thanks. a clip at the beginning, obviously, 1930s um, French love song, and then um, I just wrote a version that Dave and I could play on viola and bass. Can you talk about how the, the, res the constraints informed your process? Um, yeah, I, I approached it as I would um, any other um, writing project, either self-imposed or an outside call. Um, I read your call thoroughly and tried to understand it just in its own context first and then just let it kind of percolate, um, hoping that some good ideas would pop into my head. Um, and then over maybe like the next couple weeks, um, I wrote maybe five different stories that I thought might be usable for the project. Um, and they all had in common the first, <clears throat> the opening line and then, you know, similar length. <clears throat> and I kind of just trusted that while the ideas were percolating, um, the other constraints were also up there being considered. <laughs> um, and then I just went through the stories to see which, to which I could apply the other constraints most organically and not have it sound um, forced. Um, and the only one I had a lot of trouble with was the pre-recorded voice, but everything else I um, could deal with pretty easily. Right, well, we used the song sort of acted as the recorded voice in that one. Right, right. yeah, so usually if I'm doing an audio piece, I um, like every element to be original, so I write my text and the music and try to play everything myself just to avoid bringing outside associations to piece, so that was the hardest for yeah. me to deal with. Um, I was curious, although you might have already answered, answered this what you just said, but this story of the conjoined twins, is it something that you thought of before? Did it, it really came out of thinking about that opening No, I hadn't thought of, of it before. You yeah. never got along and just trying to think what kind of yeah, it just popped up. scenarios. <laughs> it huh. Yeah, it, it's a very, uh, it came together very organically at the end. Uh, you know, a lot of the pieces, some of the pieces are very clearly following rules. Um, and uh, yours, I felt like it, if you just heard it on the radio, you wouldn't guess that there's these, you know, kind of perverse constraints behind it that you were trying to follow and fit into the story. So. <clears throat> Thanks. Um, just had another question for you. Did you feel at any time, like, did you want it to be longer? Was, was the time, did you feel like you had more to the story or, or was that the story, the right time for the story? No, actually, um, I usually write short stories <clears throat> and um, I was really mindful of it when I was drafting the stories for this project. Um, and then when we went to record it, there was tons of just empty space that I had to add to it. 
Oh, you had to actually add words. Yeah. Because on radio, you can always add some sound, which is nice. You can extend something. It's harder to cut Yeah, it down. sounded like I had, you know, like these big gaps just waiting for like 10 seconds to pass so I could <laughs> get to the 2.30. So I revised my draft. Cool. And I'm curious, is, did the process inform you? Do you think you'll, the next thing you work on, will, did you, are there any lessons to be learned from working with, within constraints for you? Um, well, I always prefer it in general. It's so much easier to work with um, writing prompts and to have an assignment is just a lot easier than try to tame, um, you know, many impulses that you have. Right, right. <laughs> so. Yeah, a big thing about using constraints is, uh, you know, overcoming the horror of the blank page or the, the blank tape or whatever it is, um, having something to, to grapple with to start out with. One other thing that really occurred to us about Jill's piece was how visual it was. I mean, we really were, we could just picture it so well, and it was really a great example of radio draws pictures and, and really can really give you a very vivid scene in your mind, so. Thanks. All right. Thanks. We also want to invite the Short Docs producers to ask each other questions, so jump on yeah. in at any time. Um, but we'll move on to the next one is uh, Till Death Do Us Part by Sasha Aslanian. She's from Minnesota, and uh, we'll talk to her a little bit more after we hear it. To begin with, they never got along. A home built on Jesus Christ, the solid foundation. Well, this is from our marriage. The walls of prayer, covered by love. It is this Pastor Tina's though. Yeah. The guy had it right. God grant that the two of you... Yeah, just like, like God is the foundation for the church, the man is the foundation for the family. So I, ask, I believed it then, and I believe it now. My parents, Paul Eslanian and Salford Ladstein, got married in 1963. They stayed together for 15 years. I, Salford Ladstein, take thee, Paul Eslanian... She was only 11. <laughs> Listen to that voice. They've been divorced for 22 years. My mom says when they were dating, she wrote down a list of all his criticisms of her. She should have known right then. Turn that damn thing on. No, I want to hear, I want to hear my voice again. I want to hear that sermon that I was so enraged during that yeah. sermon. I love that sermon. They're still dating. They still don't really get along. As a kid, I told people they got divorced because he's a Republican and she's a Democrat. And like the presidential cycle, elections every four years, my parents break up about every four years. Tonight, I caught them on a good night. You mind if I put my arm around your mother while I'm talking? <laughs> <laughs> listen to that. Listen to that. Can't laugh. <laughs> I mean, we should really be ashamed of all of the agony that we've put everybody through besides each other. I went to a sort of divorce court. It was surreal. That was over. It was over, and I thought, shit, is that all there is to it? Free at last. Free at last. Praise God Almighty. Free at last. It's hard not to get caught up in my parents' drama. People I haven't seen in years always ask, what's up with your parents? It's like a soap opera they want to plug back into. Something that began when they were teenagers still consumes them as 60-year-olds. I'm guessing that maybe I should... Um... I should pack up and, and let you guys resume your dream date without me. <laughs> Sound like a plan? No, I think you ought to just follow us upstairs with that thing. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. This one uh, really blew me away when I first heard it. I found it very, it was so, it's so charming overall, but also just that shock of uh, realization at the beginning that like, this isn't something made up, this is actually like, she's made something that I was secretly hoping with this, that although it's this kind of uh, weird literary conceit, that people would find ways to do uh, not what you necessarily expect, like even doing you know, documentary uh, real life stuff. So when you hear that recorded voice, um, and you realize that the scenario is actually, you know, two parents talking, listening to their, uh, and the fact that they have a recording of their marriage vows is pretty wild too. Uh, it was just really great, and, and it seemed like you, uh, you did a really nice job of, again, very organically weaving in all of the, the constraints. Oh, was one of them particularly harder than the others? Um, well, when I read the call for stories and read the first line, I thought, oh, that's my parents. <laughs> and um, so it was, it was pretty easy. I mean, the idea sort of popped out fully formed. Um, I had the archival tape because of the, um, the wedding vows. And I'd already, I'd actually gathered the tape in 2004 for another project that I've been slowly working on. So you already had this material already? Right? I had oh. it. Wow. Is that cheating? No, no, okay. no. Uh, so uh, I had to. I had to. Um, the metronome came pretty easily because of the sort of the the rhythm of their um, getting getting together and breaking up. Um, and the exclamation was maybe the only one thing I had to sort of fish around for, mm -hmm. and then came up with my dad saying "free at last." <laughs> There's definitely so, exclamation yeah. points can, at the end of that. Can I ask the audience a question? Yeah, sure. Do you, um, my dad wants to know this, do you guys take him at face value that he really believes that the man is the head of the household? Um, yes. Yes? yes? Oh, shoot, he's right, okay. Because um, my dad is a big provocateur, and so that was almost all sort of his um, sort of posturing. The only glimmer of my real dad is when he, he gets real for a second when he talks about going to divorce court, and um, that's actually a, like a sort of a, a real moment for him describing, you know, the biggest failure of his life and how he went in with sort of a 40-page statement of how he was going to explain the biggest failure of his life and he gets nine words into it and the referee goes, granted, and my dad was just so, like, you don't, you don't want to hear this. So anyway, that's the only real moment I'll tell him that he was I, I took right. it as, as <clears throat> a bit ironic, but kind of what he really, you know, sort of using yeah. humor to mask his real feelings. That's right. Yeah. Um, another question I had is, uh, have you thought about doing the kind of the flip version of this, where you say that, you know, I've got him on a good day today, and they're like sort of bantering. It'd be interesting to try and get him on a bad day, which it sounds like they have plenty of, although, you know, this is overall, it's like, it's hard to believe that these people got divorced and don't get along because they're so, they have such a great rapport. But if they really do not get along, it'd be really interesting to try and do a sort of complimentary piece, even following the same rules, but sort of getting them. It'd be easy to get them on a bad day. Um, <laughs> I, I had dinner with him a few nights ago, and I said, well, what should I tell everybody, Mom? And Mom says, tell them it's an election year. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, Sasha, I was wondering, you usually work on like hour-long documentaries. How was this time limit for you? Um, it was really fun um, yeah. to be able to just turn something around quickly. I'd say most things I do have to go through six tape edits and um, change dramatically from the first draft to the final. And this one was um, really a first draft. It was scratch tracks I had intended to go back and, and record. And I listened to it, and I just thought, hmm, I like it like that. So it was refreshing to be able to just 
whip something out. That's great. And a, a short aside, uh, one of the Austrian producers who sent a couple ways in um, wrote me some emails agonizing over how he said he had worked almost as much on his little two and a half minute piece that, and then some of his radio features are the same amount of time and he was really convinced that short was not easier. So that was a good lesson for him. But maybe you know, we're used to hearing shorter pieces maybe working in the shorter format. So maybe it was a little, little easier for the American producers to, to take on the shorter, the shorter time. Cool. I was really struck also by how much we learn in two and a half minutes because we think you need a lot of time to get a lot of information across. but. Um, well, we felt like we got to know your dad, and your, you know the humor came through, um, and just there was a, just a lot of information delivered in a short amount of time with this one. So, I, I just I was going to say one more thing about gathering the tape. Um, I have been working on this project, and I called my parents and said, "Can I come over and bring my recording stuff? I want to play something for you." And I surprised them by playing the wedding vows. And um, I said, I need your help. Who are these people? Because I thought it was really funny that my mother sounds like she's 11 and I can barely <laughs> recognize my dad's voice. And so I put it on and I was sort of in a laughing mood and my mother immediately burst into tears. Oh. And I realized like that was a horrible thing to do. <laughs> and I was kind of playing and this is their real lives. So yeah. that was... Uh, yeah. That, anyway, that was why my dad was cracking so many jokes to kind of get my mom to <laughs> pull herself together, and that did not make the two and a half minute version. Uh, right. <laughs> but when you make the extended well, remix I don't version, know. <laughs> it's just some tears. Yeah, yeah no. no. It didn't, doesn't feel right. Truly a testament to the power of audio. I mean, just hearing her voice just brought that back immediately, yeah. huh? Great. Does anyone out there want to ask a question? I think we have some time before we move on. Don't see. Oh. Well, in a situation where you're working with Well, the story that I told here is is very different from why I thought I was gathering the tape, um, but I was trying to follow the rules, and so that naturally just led me to a different story. Um, I don't know if you're also just asking about sort of the danger of mining your own family for tape. Uh, I don't know if you're interested in that. Don't do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, Zoe Irvine came from Scotland over to join us. There she's there. And uh, <laughs> Zoe made a couple of ways. I, you can go on the website and hear her other one, but the one we chose for the short talk is called O Debut. Uh, but you can't know, but you've got to imply that they began to get along later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At first. At first they never wanted to begin with. It's not translated. <laughs> you see, you don't understand. The French mind <laughs> It doesn't uh, think like that. With, no, no, that's it, but to begin with, uh, it's not possible. But what about... Did you say at the beginning, he didn't understand well? No. Yes. Yes. 
En anglais, c'est « to begin with, they never got along ». Faut traduire ça. Au commencement. Non, mais « to begin with », c'est pas... Euh... Non, mais c'est pas « il était une fois », là. C'est pas... Elle parle juste au début de la relation, quand ils se sont rencontrés, quelque chose de même. Mais ça veut dire quoi, au... « to begin with », on se regarde. Au début, c'est pourquoi je cherche une idée. Au commencement, c'est correct. C'est au, euh, au début. Je connais le Miracle Whip, mais je connais pas le Begin. Do we have to say exactly the same thing? Non, non, no, you can choose. Non, je vais prendre ma version. C'est quoi ta version? Okay. Ben, je sais pas. You have début. your version? Euh, au début, ils ne s'entendaient pas bien. Oh. Ensemble? Non, pas ensemble. Ils ne s'entendaient pas bien. Ils ne s'entendaient pas bien. Au début? Et on ne sort pas des bobies. So I'm, I'm looking for slightly more secrecy, like you're just telling me this, and you're telling me in this ear. No? Yes. Au début, ils ne s'entendaient pas bien. Au début, ils ne s'entendaient pas bien ensemble. Ta gueule! <laughs> So, Zoe, the question I'm dying to ask about this is: Was this whole thing a, uh, a setup? Did you guys get these? Did you get these guys in the studio? The idea that this was going to be your piece, or? Were you working on some other piece and stumbled, decided on this later? Um, well, I kind of decided that I would go into that first phrase, it being the only material that we were given. Mm -hmm. um, and I did different versions. In fact, I did more than I submitted, because you're only allowed to submit two. <laughs> <laughs> rules, <laughs> rules, rules. Yeah. yeah, and I'm obeying them. And um, so uh, I thought, okay, I'm just going to take that um, phrase and, and just go with it. And these were people who I was working with over the summer in uh, Montreal. And we'd done a lot of, like, how do you say this? And um, it, all the sort of different mentality. You know, it's not just language, it's the whole mentality. Mm. And um, so I thought, okay, well, we'll take this and try and... And actually, that recording's about half an hour long. <laughs> um, it was really, really um, blow by blow. And um, by great good fortune, Youssef um, kind of interrupted one of the recordings. And um, so we got our exclamation completely yeah. naturally. And, um, you know, as soon as that had happened, and I think the people that I was working with didn't understand that that's what I would do. Although they know my work, so it's, you know, kind yeah. of possible they might have thought that. Just the exclamation being the guy saying, ta gueule at the end, which was like, shut up. Yeah. Right, so like, breaking uh, the laughter. Um, the, the hardest one, it seems, to, to make out is the, uh, the repetition. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like it's basically it's within the repetition of the, of the phrase, um, again, using, kind of using the material. It is. Um, it's also right at the beginning in the pre-recorded voice. So you, you hear um, that same phrase, um, au début, um, and I don't actually know what it is in French, but um, so you hear that just played over and over mm -hmm. on the tape at the very, very start, mm -hmm. and that I um, sort of took care of that, plus the general repetition. Right. Yeah, I kind of took it as just throughout the, mm. the, the, the language in general, but the, the phrase, especially, kind of, you know, repeated over regularly. Over, yeah. It seemed to work. 
Yeah, there were ways the rhythmic noise got a little tricky. Some people used music and percussion in music. Other people used actual sounds. Um, some people just used the, the weight of language going back and forth and all, all sorts of variations on that idea of rhythmic noises. The thing that struck me about this, I just mentioned how Sasha's had so much information in two and a half minutes. It's contentless. I mean, there's no information. And there was something to me very gratifying about that. And it was actually just an experience just to listen to it. Um, and some of the other ways took on this more like this is going to be a sound experience for you. I think sort of pushed the story aside, embraced the rules, and just made some beautiful listening experiences. So that was something that I thought um, was really beautiful about this one. And also that you get the sense, of course, it was a longer recording, but something's happening as you listen. Um, things are unfolding in time, and, and we're witnessing that rather than it being a flashback or I wanted know, it a to storytelling. The thing of two and a half minutes, and in some of the other um, work that I did, thinking of two and a half minutes, and I love that as a, I, I really respond to rules, and um, it's very good, and two and a half minutes is, is great, is that I really began to overconstruct. Um, you know, because you think, two and a half minutes, I've got to, right, right, go, go, go. <laughs> um, and I wanted to do something literally kind of throwaway, um, you know, really ephemeral, really nothing, as a kind of counterbalance to the, my, my tendency towards mega structure. Yeah, I, I liked the really casual, ephemeral quality to it, the sort of just fly in the wall thing of listening to a bunch of people working out a problem. Um, but at the same time, when you, when you know the rules and you're listening to it from in, in terms of the, the short docs, it, uh, it, it might be the, the purest one uh, of the whole bunch because it really all it has is you know the sentence and, and the rules and the way that it, it reworks those. Um, you know, like Julie was saying, it's content. The, con the only content is the, the rules and how they're they're played out, and it ends up you know I think a very nice little piece. I also like the contrast between Christians, which we heard earlier, which was so much going on mm -hmm. in two and a half. Like there isn't a moment to even take a breath in that. Yeah, I did listen and to that. that one. I'm sure none of you even got what was right. going on. I had to listen to that. Oh, yeah, listen to that one a couple more times. Parse this, um, all the stuff that's going on. Uh, all of these, actually, in headphones, pop alive a little bit more as well. But with yours, there's just this space. And that was, that was really nice to think. Um, when we are limited in time, we often feel like it has to be packed and quick and really obvious. So it's nice to have some subtleties. And, and also, and if you do listen through headphones, it's a binaural recording. So you get even more of a sense of that sort of just the room we're in yeah. and um, that I've got a tape recorder in my hand and that I kind of play this tape back and it's got kind of position related to your head. Cool. All right, let's move on to the last one. Um, Karma Jolly is from Canada. She works for the CBC show Outfront and she made Boris the Mover. <laughs> I'm calling for Providian with the brand new visa no. offer. Hi, this is Erin on behalf of Time Warner Cable and uh, Sorry. The reason for my call today is that GTE realizes that some of our customers may not, not be aware. Not interested. Telemarketers and me, we just don't get along. Hello, Boris calling. But Boris is different. I was calling, calling to check with you if you need the moving or the delivery. We have the big truck and the strong uh, men. An immigrant cold calling in a strange land. We 
work um, anytime in providing the quality service at a very, uh, very uh, low price. I tell my co-workers about Boris and his courage, and I find out they've heard from Boris too. In fact, some people hear from Boris every week, two or three times. Please, uh, to call, speak with me, is Boris, yes? Turns out Boris is the voice of a computerized system capable of beaming spam to upwards of 450,000 voicemail accounts a day. Boris, why? And uh, we will make you um, So can you explain where and when you collected this tape, how this came together? It's actually a true story. Um, <laughs> I got the Boris message. It's famous in Toronto where I live. Every, almost everyone you talk to has gotten <laughs> Boris. There's also Janusz <laughs> and I think Roger from England. I've not heard from Janusz and Roger. <laughs> I got the Boris message and I really felt like, wow, this guy, he's just calling around. He just wants to work. He just wants to make some money. And my husband's an immigrant, and he has trouble, you know, he had a long, t uh, long battle finding a job, so I really felt for this guy, Boris. And I was talking about it at work, and that's when I found out, oh, yeah, one, one of my co-workers was like, Boris called me every week for a month. I'm starting to think he knows something I don't know. <laughs> so then I got the Boris, that time I deleted the Boris message, then I got the Boris message again, and I'm like, okay, I'm saving this, I'm going to make something with it. And I had it um, saved on my hard drive for two years, and then 99 Ways came along. <laughs> Never throw away your tape. And yeah. when did you learn that it was actually recorded voice? And did you figure that out when uh, Well, because you heard that other people were getting it? Yeah, yeah, because you wouldn't believe how many people in Toronto heard right. from Boris, like just about everyone. I just, and I thought, this is amazing that technology is they're, they're so clever that they're making you think it's this homegrown one guy thing and it's not, it's this whole... Then I started researching the company Best Price Movers and they've got complaints with the CR, our, our uh, broadcasting regulator because it's illegal to send this spam and you try to phone them and get your number off the list and there's all these complaints and... There's quite a story there. <laughs> And how did working with the restraints go for you? Was that frustrating? Didn't you, well, actually. Um, I didn't find the constraints all that constraining, actually. <laughs> I, I felt like, it's, you know, with every single one, there's so many possibilities. Yeah. Um, the beginning sentence gave me a lot of trouble because it was a preformed idea that I had, and then I wasn't quite sure how to deal with the opening sentence because grammatically it didn't work for what I had in mind. And mm -hmm. Not that the grammar was wrong. I didn't know that. It was just the 
the they and never and the past tense and it right. was me. So I thought, mm, I guess I'm going to use the opportunity to do a figurative interpretation that right, you offered. Right. So that's what the telemarketer, me hanging up on telemarketers is. And um, then the exclamation, I was a little confused about because I actually just had the um, answering machine beep as the exc exclamation and my coworker listened to it and said, I think you need to actually have like a word. <laughs> and I was like, well, what am I going to say? So then I said, why? <laughs> very, very effectively. Yes, and also I moved yesterday, uh, Tuesday, the day before the conference started, and I didn't call Boris. Uh, <laughs> once betrayed, never. Uh, um, yeah, that brings up a good point, which is some of the rules we found out were not strict enough, and were they sort of left a little too open for interpretation, which is what we wanted in some sense, but it also resulted in sometimes we really couldn't tell at what point the rules were being followed. Yeah, part of so, the part of the you know, the struggle of trying to come up with the rules in the first place was, um, you know, trying to figure something that would be challenging but not too off-putting, especially since you guys wanted to get, you know, first-time producers and, and just, you know, make it pretty open imitational. We did decide kind of in retrospect that, especially the recorded voice, I mean, who doesn't use recorded voices in, <laughs> right. in radio production? That ended up being a, a bit too, right. too much of a, a giveaway. Actually, telephones, um, there's a remarkable number of them that use telephone conversations or answering machine messages. And, you know, it, it, for some reason, people's brains went very quickly to the telephone for that one. Um, but we, we certainly decided that your, like, the way you changed the opening phrase of the, you know, me and telemarketers didn't get along. Uh, was a very acceptable change to the thing. And that reminds me of something that I don't know if we actually talked about, which is another element of the whole um, the Ulipo and their idea of working with constraints, is that there's a corollary concept that they call the Kleinemann, um, which is basically uh, a get out of jail free card. That, you know, and every, every time that you have working under constrained work, whatever the rules are, um, as the artist, you do have the, the right at any, any time to jettison one or all of the rules. I don't think we wanted to put that in the call for <laughs> No, entries. no, no. But certainly, you know, a lot of people basically did that, like either tweaked it slightly or, or you know, didn't use a particular rule at all. Some people send stuff that hardly followed the rules at all, right. but still were really cool pieces, so. Um, yeah, there's a whole variety up there. Some are really mind-boggling and just, I mean, they're, they're joyful in that some people just really went wild with the project and uh, just, I think, used them for their own selves to have a, have a great exercise in, in putting something together. Um, it's about 10.30 right now. We're going to go just a little over. Do you guys want to hear w one more way since we're here? OK. Is that? Oh, oh yeah. Are there questions about the project or about, do you want to direct a question to any of the Short Docs producers? A question for Zoe. Uh, I was intrigued by the music uh, behind uh, the voices. And I was just wondering where you got that music from. Um, it's uh, Nordestino Brazilian music, I, if I remember correctly. Why did you pick that? Um, I, I picked it because I felt it had a kind of lightness and a momentum, and it, I needed both. <laughs> I was just, uh, just an observation. I'm an English-Canadian producer, married to a French-Canadian producer, and they love that stuff. They love deconstructing the language. They're going for hours on the radio. Indeed. <laughs> so if, you, if we could ever get this on Radio Canada, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Great. Any other questions? All right. Um, sorry. Uh, well, the question was if that was you singing karma, and your answer was yes. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Next question. And the following comment was 
that um, it gave me the sense of this kind of um, you know, non-directional world of telemarketing. And yeah. the, the irony of it is you're actually calling someone directly, but it's not pointed to any one person, really. And I was wondering if that was what you were intending to sound. I don't think so on a conscious level. I just were, did the piece very intuitively, but that's what it all seems to add up to, so hopefully that makes me look smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but it also has a kind of, um, like, it made me feel like, oh, Eastern Europe or something. Maybe that's where Boris comes from. <laughs> He's from Russia, I think. <laughs> Is he? Okay, well, maybe Russia. I do think there's a real way to talk about important things in these little short pieces, and I thought it was a great cultural commentary on technology and you know, isolation and loneliness and, and all these different ways. And so many of these stories tell big, they're small, but they tell really big stories. And one, one thing we wanted to prove with this project was that you don't have to take a lot of time to tell an important, meaningful, big, beautiful, and great story for other people to hear. So um, let's listen to one more before we break up. Uh, this one is, was done by Rick Moody and Michael Hurst, who were both guests last year, and they collaborate on other projects together. Um, this was after Rick wrote the long email about how the sentence was incorrect. And in the email, he actually says, so we've come up with our own way of interpreting this first line. Um, so, you know, they, yeah, they broke the rule in an acceptable way. And this is called, they didn't get along. To begin with, they didn't get along. Jack and Diane, Thelma and Louise, Punch and Judy, Baskin and Robbins. Rowan and Martin, Ogilvy and Mather, Ricky and Lucy, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, Huntley and Brinkley, Abbott and Costello, Burns and Allen, Scylla and Charybdis, Reagan and Bush. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. In their middle years, they didn't get along. Austria and Hungary. India and Pakistan, Lebanon and Syria, Paraguay and Uruguay, Iran and Iraq, Ethiopia and Eritrea, North and South Korea, Corinth and Athens, China and Tibet, Russia and Ukraine, Turkey and Greece, Britain and France. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. During the missing years, they didn't get along. Apache and Choctaw, Hopi and Navajo, Tamil and Sinhalese, Catholic and Protestant, Protestant and Protestant, Catholic and Jew, Catholic and Muslim, Muslim and Jew, Serbian and Albanian, Bosnian and Croat, Magyar and Romani, Armenian and Georgian, Chechnyan and Slav, Czech and Pole, they didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. They didn't get along. At the end of the day, they didn't get along. Down and out, sacred and profane, beautiful and damned, first and foremost, shimmy and shake, latest and greatest, state and main, Venus and Mars, thrust and parry, Lift and separate, clean and sober, rock and roll, cannon and fugue, black 
and white and yellow and red and tan and indigo and tangerine and fuchsia and mauve. They didn't get along. Great. So that's just a smattering of some of the ways. Um, but that brings me to the point that we only have 73 ways. And as we said, the title of the experiment is 99 Ways to Tell a Radio Story. I can't think of a better place to uh, put the call out. We're accepting ways until the end of the year, December 31st. And we have a special incentive for people in this room to make a way, which is? Well, anyone who turns in a piece, uh, a finished piece, we'll send you a copy of my book that will be signed yes. by me. So, a little momentum of the occasion. Um, so please consider it. It's, uh, it's been really fun getting to know new people through this project. And the, as I said, the archive is going to stay up in a permanent way on the website. So you'll be part of that. And um, yeah, it, it'd just be great to have more people. Uh, there's people in this room whose work you heard the beginnings of. There's Actually, could I see a show of hands? I know there are a few in here who have made the ways. Yeah, there's a couple here, here and there. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, I hope you all go. You have a couple months. You know, the holidays are coming up. You can relax a little and, and put yeah, your mind to it. There's a lot of people it. who didn't raise their hands. Right. There's only a couple. Um, so Matt is going to be selling his book upstairs along with at, at our merch table. So if you're interested in picking up a copy. Yeah, I'll be there for about a half hour or so. But I'll be, I'll also be around for the, the He'd be week. happy to sign. Um, and I think... That's about all we have. Thanks so much to the producers who took this challenge on and for coming all the way to present them.